podcast is out. The age of independence is here, where the next generation of high-performing agencies transform the agency landscape. I'm a mom, a businesswoman, and mega startup coach. This podcast is all about you, the agency owner, stepping into the new wave of opportunity, knocking out the competition in the modern market. This is the Age of Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Agar. Welcome to the show. Hi, agents, and welcome to the show. Today, we get to pick the brain of a um, really innovative um, mind who is joining us from across the ocean in South Africa. It's not every day that we get to talk insurance from someone on a different continent. So super pumped to bring that interview to you today. We are speaking with Brad Shorkin, the co-CEO of Still Human. And this is a company that works with organizations around the world to innovate and create exceptional experiences for employees. And he's the co-author of the book, We're Still Human and Work Shouldn't Suck. So (laughs) I can't wait to hear a little bit more about what makes work suck and what we can do about it. I want to introduce you to the man of the hour. This human is Brad Shawkind, lover of life and obsessed with adventure, with growth, with travel, with making a difference. But I really wanted to be architecting people. That's what really lights me up. Changing the world of work and changing possibility for human beings. You will not, as an organization, be able to innovate if the people inside your organization are not being treated in a way that invites them to participate. It's about changing your internal dialogue. That's what I'm doing here. And all of this creates exceptional business outputs and kick-ass innovation. And it's now time to understand and to shift into the future state. Which means we need to do a whole lot of new thinking in order to achieve a whole lot of new doing. I get up on stage with a very passionate intention to wake people up in areas of their lives or businesses where they're not awake and to get them to see things differently, be able to apply themselves differently. And I get that this is not easy, but nothing worthwhile really is. Welcome to the show, Brad. How are you today? Thank you, Katrin. Great to be here all the way from South Africa. It's uh, morning where you are. It's gone dark and it's evening here where I am. Um, but excited to be joining you and to share with um, with your community. Have you had dinner yet today? Not yet. Dinner's happening after this. So you're just running on creativity and entrepreneurial spirit at the moment then? <laughs> I'm running on creativity, entrepreneurial spirit, and a lot of coffee. I love it. So, um, Brad, how long have you, you've lived in South Africa your whole life, correct? I have lived in South Africa my whole life. I recently turned 50, so I'm at the half century mark and um, have been here all those years. I've traveled extensively prior to COVID. Um, I actually had traveled to my 50th country 
just before we went into lockdown, uh, my wow. 50th uh, international uh, trip. And obviously many of the countries more than once. It was my 50th new country and that was actually Mexico, uh, which was really interesting. And um, yeah, but I've, I've lived here all my life. I've never lived overseas, although I've spent a lot of time overseas. So was that a goal to make it to the 50th country before 50? It wasn't an intentional goal. And um, I knew I had, had traveled a lot. I only really started traveling internationally um, when I was uh, finished school. I had only traveled outside of our borders once as a, as a, as a kid. I went to play soccer in Europe, actually, um, to represent South Africa when I was 14. And then I never went overseas again until I was finished my studies. So that was when I was about 25. So I only started international travel at my midlife mark from where I am now. And uh, so that's been an average of what, two countries a year per year, new countries for the past 25 years. And it was actually while I was in, in the airport, I traveled to Mexico via Paris. And um, I was sitting in the airport, we had a long layover. And I thought, you know what, I wonder how many countries I've been to. And there was an app that you could go to and you could start to tick off the countries. Wow. And I started and I was counting and eventually I was in the 30s and the 40s. Wow. I thought, okay, hold on. We got to get to 50. And so <laughs> I started going through this app. And, and then I remembered some of the rather uh, unusual countries up in Africa that I had been to that I'd forgotten about. They were short business trips, but they counted. And eventually I scraped in there to the 50. And uh, it was okay. That's good. Now we need to get to 100. And then COVID hits us. And the way the world's going, South Africans are not welcome anywhere. So I don't know what's going to happen now. Oh my gosh. Well, my, my husband, Justin, has lived in six countries. He was born in South Korea, grew up in Fiji, and then he joined the military. So that took him to Iceland and Italy and some, some great places. So needless to say, he's a little bit stir crazy <laughs> with this whole COVID situation. So uh, we yeah. keep adding places to our list that we want to visit as soon as possible. So you got to break it down for us. What, uh, what shouldn't we miss out of those 50 countries? Wow. What shouldn't you miss? Um, <laughs> Peru. I absolutely loved Peru. Uh, I went there on a, on a climbing expedition. So climbing high altitude mountaineering is my, is my sport, is my hobby. Um, so I would say Peru was an incredible trip. The climbing was amazing, but just the country itself, the people, the things to see, the food, uh, the culture, amazing um i would say you definitely don't want to miss and uh, climbing aside traveling to places like nepal tibet incredible incredible places to go and adventure um and then i'm, I'm not sure if you've been to south africa yet but south africa is a, an incredible country with amazing amazing places to see people to experience um, some of the most beautiful sites in the world without a doubt um, and yeah, I, I could I could definitely keep going. Um, I think another one that I would highly recommend would probably be an adventure. So again, different. It depends on what you're looking for from from the trip. Um, you know, I, I love high energy uh, city experiences as well. And for me, uh, obviously, Paris is a, is just an incredible, uh, completely different to Nepal, Tibet, places in Africa, Peru. But for a city, Paris is, is hard to beat. I haven't been to Paris yet. It's definitely on the list. Wow. Have you visited um, South uh, Korea yet? 
So I haven't been to South Korea. South Korea, Vietnam, Saigon, those kind of, I haven't got to yet. And they're, they're high up on my list, very high up on my list. If you like high energy cities, I, I think Seoul is just a mm. beautiful city and the people are amazing. And it's, it's just a really great place. But then you can travel outside of the city to see the beautiful countryside and yeah. get just amazing. so many different experiences. So that was one yeah. that one day, we would like to go back to. Yeah, one day when the borders open up again, when the borders open up, that's um, high on the list. Yes, absolutely. And I, um, as we've been getting to know each other, I know that you love to travel and that you've also done a lot of research on human behavior and how we think and things that we do. So have you found that your travels have been a part of that research? So I think what traveling does when we travel with an open mind and an open eye is we get to experience culture. And I think what people don't understand is culture is always being created, either because of us or in spite of us. And um, what people also don't understand culture, you get culture in the context of the way people do things a certain way in a certain environment, which is clearly visible. You know, when you travel into Peru, you see the culture, it's, in, it's, in, it's demonstrated visually. But behind the demonstration is behavior, is mindset of values constructs that are not as obvious because they're not demonstrated physically, but they come through in behavior. But because the other new visuals, the things we're experiencing in new environments are so loud, we often don't see the culture behind it, the real behavioral stuff. Um, and it's when you stop and actually look at what's going on behind the scenes, peel away all of the decoration and have a look at the essence. That's where the magic lives. And um, that's where the learning lives as well. When we bring that back to our workplace and we think about in the workplace, we don't necessarily have all of that decoration, all of that difference. We try and create it through brand artifacts, but what we do experience loudly is the essence, is the behavior, are the values constructs. And so I think what traveling has done is it's given me a way of looking past the decoration appreciating it and going to the essence and then bringing that back to my workplace environment, studying human behavior and essence in the workplace. And that is where human beings are either switched on and grown or switched off and depleted at the essence of what the way that a culture is formed, sustained because of us or in spite of us. Wow. And so going deeper, um, allows things to start to become a little bit more meaningful then. Um, and you're, you're a unique organization in South Africa. You're, you're one of the only companies that, that really takes the approach that you do. So can you tell us a little bit more about Still Human? Yeah, thank you. So Still Human is a, um, was almost an accident. It's quite crazy how these things happen is you don't know that you're, you, you found something really amazing until you start getting feedback that like this thing you do is different and it matters. <laughs> Still Human was a, um, let me rather backtrack slightly. So Andy and I, Andy's my business partner and we co-founded Still Human, but we were introduced to each other uh, about seven, seven and a half years ago by a mutual friend and colleague who, he said, you two need to speak to each other. You have a lot in common. Andy had a, a passion for 
all things employee experience and was wanting to, to research, study, build a business in that space. I previously was an architect. I had run my architecture practice for about 16 years and I specialized in space for people, creating experiences for people um, through space. And I got to a point where I realized I wanted more. I wanted more impact. I wanted, I was more purpose-driven than what architecture allowed and I wanted to make a difference in the world. And so I stepped away from my architecture practice and this was my life's work really. And um, I re-educated myself and I started, I studied consciousness, I studied leadership, I studied strategy, I studied design thinking, innovation. And I, and I traveled around the world seeking out the best thought leaders, methodologies that I could um, to inform my own new thinking on the back of a, a very uh, deep business experience. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just knew I wanted to impact. And there was a profound moment where somebody in a, in a mastermind group said to me, you know, I didn't, hadn't worked out my new career, said to me, what are you doing? You've been architecting for people or for businesses all this time in space, go and architect for people and help them with architecting the human being. So I started, this is now my 16th year in this career after 16 years in architecture with a, a little educational overlap. It's quite crazy that this career is about to overtake the first one, but still human came about through Andy and I now, different backgrounds, shared passion for the human experience we introduced to each other. And we, we decided to not formalize anything. We just spent uh, about a year initially researching and trying to understand what do the best companies around the world do and obsess about getting right in terms of the human experience. And, and I use the word obsessed deliberately. They're obsessed about getting certain things right because they understand that if you get the human being into its most optimal state, performance is at a higher level. Now, why this is profoundly powerful is because there's an old leadership mindset about command and control style leadership. We beat people into performance or carrot and stick, but eventually you run out of carrots or the stick gets too sore. And the best leaders in history, in sporting contexts, in military contexts, in business contexts, in family context, in you name it, are the people who've understood that you need to ignite people into a space of enthusiastic participation. Because there they give of their discretionary effort, they give willingly. And it's not about reward. Reward is part of any context, but it's because they buy in and they want to participate constructively and they buy into something positive. Um, and because they're being treated in a certain way. So we were looking for what are the things that these, these leaders get right? And we were looking for just five things. Then five became seven and seven became 12 because there were things we couldn't ignore. And um, what happened was Andy and I crafted a model that clearly demonstrated how these 12, we call them the 12 essentials of what we call a company behaving awesomely, which is the culture, how they work with each other. And they all impact each other the whole time. And that's the magic is that none of them lives in isolation. If you're an organization and you just focus on uh, meaningful communication or communication as a key theme and you invest everything there, but you're not paying attention to the others, well, you have an emphasis in one area, but a deficit in the others, and they will pull that big one down. So when you understand how they impact each other, the game changes. We thought 12 was too heavy. So we went back to these organizations all over the world. We went everywhere you can imagine, speaking to 
many of the organizations that we've heard about are great places to, to work and many that we've never heard about, but we, we kind of stumbled across. We, we felt like stalkers. We were like <laughs> arriving in their, in their LinkedIn message boxes and in their email boxes just saying, hey, we've heard about you. We'd love to chat to you. What, what do you do? That's magic. Did they respond? Were they, were they, some responded, many, many, many of them responded. Some didn't because they thought, who are these people? But you know what? People want to talk about themselves and um, participation was amazing. To bring it back to the moment that Still Human was formed is we built this model. We had no idea what we were going to do with it. And we were invited to speak at a, a learning conference to a few hundred learning practitioners and leaders. And I said to Andy, you know what, let's take this and let's share it with an, a well-informed, educated community and see what they say. And so um, it was, a, we had never also shared a stage together. We were informal. I said, come, jump onto the stage with me and let's, let's talk. And so we shared this model with this learning community. And in, in the presentation, there was a moment where I said, we, we also didn't have a name. <laughs> we had called ourselves essentials. For the like, just to have an identity because the model is the essentials model. And during the presentation, there was a moment where I said, Because we are still human, and the whole audience went, <gasps> and there was this like moment of there, the little hair I have is, on my arm is standing up on end because that was the oh. moment that happened. Was so organic. We, we got off stage. I said to Andy, We actually have to build a business with this thing. Uh, we got incredible feedback on it. Before we knew it, we were in business. Oh, I said, we've got to call it Still Human. And that was the birth of Still Human. And within a short time, we were writing the book and building models and working with organizations around the world, helping them to be better places uh, for human beings to wake up in the morning, to go to, and not at the price of high performance, to deliver, to shoot the lights out, but not at the price of human beings, at the high levels of engagement of human beings. And that's what we've specialized in now for the past seven years is different ways of helping organizations measure, understand, educate, um, lead this higher human experience for better business. Uh, and it's morphed into another whole different direction now because what we've now found still human has become in this past year during the, the COVID is a, a happy place almost, a, a go-to for employee experience practitioners who are lonely out there, the, the, the area of specialization around employee experience. Um, it's a bit of an offshoot of HR. It's an uncertain specialization. It's, it's almost the way of HRing in the future. But what does that mean? And we found now that we're attracting these practitioners from around the world who are looking for a system, for a toolkit, for a way of thinking. And we've built all of that stuff. So that's our, our um, that's still human in a, in a long nutshell. <laughs> I love it. And you're unlocking the human experience because you've seen how it can, impactful it can be when we go further than just surface level skin, de skin deep into these issues. Um, and I'm curious with what you've studied about the human consciousness, what you know about how people think that, that you wish the rest of us could get. <laughs> That's a fantastic question. What, what, I, what at the top of that list is with human consciousness, uh, I would say the thing that we should all understand and that we should all pay attention to, and this is in any environment of engaging another human being, whether at home with a, a child, spouse, 
in community, in any environment, is that there are no neutral moments. In any moment of engagement between two people or a group, we are either switching people on and growing them or switching them off and depleting them. And it's happening for them at a conscious and unconscious level. And what I mean by that is the way I engage you, my energy, my words, my intentionality, it will either switch you on, meaning you are ignited, you're inspired, you're enthused, and you're growing, meaning that you're being invited to participate intellectually. Because that's where growth lives, is my brain is being activated. So my heart is being activated, my brain is being activated. Or we're switching them off, disconnecting them, disempowering them, demotivating them, uninspiring them, and switching the, and depleting them, meaning we're not accessing them intellectually, and that will further switch them off because there's no growth. So they just start to uh, shut down. Every moment is going in one of these two directions. And the questions we need to start to ask ourselves is, in a moment of creating an experience for another human being, which direction am I going in in terms of the experience I'm creating? With what frequency do I switch on or switch off? And also with what intensity? Because you could believe that you're a person who predominantly switches people on. And maybe that's true. But when you go in the other direction, it could be with such intensity that it completely eliminates all of the positive work. So that's the first thing I think should be a fundamental of humanity is understanding that basic premise of, you know, it was Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote that there is a nanosecond between forming a thought and when it passes our lips. And that nanosecond between when it starts to emerge here and it leaves our lips is where the magic or the damage happens. It's what choice do we make in terms of what leaves passes our lips because that's where the experience is created. Um, and I would build on that and say the other thing we want to be considering always is how safe are we making it because of who we are being for other people to show up. Psychological safety in any environment is what will allow somebody to shine or to disappear into the shadows. And psychological safety is created by the narrative of how things are around here and also my expectation of another person's behavior. Our consistencies, our patterns create the level of safety for other people. What is the psychological safety we want to be creating in the environments that we engage in as human beings? And so out of everything, I mean, I can go on for hours. These two things are live and die, uh, non-negotiables. Wow. So what I'm hearing is that if we, the leaders, are checked out or on autopilot, it's not actually neutral. It's actually a not damaging neutral. impact. It's actively damaging. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. So, that I mean, that's a heavy responsibility to make sure that we're on and that we're actively engaged and that um, we're positively contributing. Um, one of the values we have at Quantum is called uh, We Are Influencers. And it's about being a positive agent of change and, you know, bringing light to the community and those all around us. And one of the things I love about that particular value is that it's not something that we um, sometimes are or sometimes are not doing and we turn it on or off. We're always influencing, whether it be for the good or for the bad. But I think that brings with it just kind of a reminder 
of, you know, we have a limited amount of time here on earth and let's make the most of it. And it's um, a big challenge to always be on and, you know, we can't always be activated, but being aware and um, not underestimating the impact that our words have and that our actions have. And the, I think a lot of times we, we downplay the influence that we really do have on someone else's day, on someone else's thoughts, on someone else's ideas. Yeah. And I think that's extremely, I love we're always influencing because that's exactly the same narrative as what I'm sharing. There's no neutral moment. And that lack of awareness of the impact we have on someone else's day, their moment, their hour, their, their, their whole life. Um, we, we, to this point of influencer, uh, we worked with an organization a little while ago and they were trying to articulate a values construct. And, you know, these days, many organizations, their value around innovation and customer centricity and oh, integrity. And you see all these fancy words all over the website and, you know, on a sign in the reception of the office building that no one goes to anymore. <laughs> and this executive team, um, they left the session hours and hours and hours of debates, one value, and everything gets pushed through this lens, and the value is kindness, mm. kindness, and this is, a, this is a financial institution as well, they didn't put winning, they didn't any kindness, they said, let that be a value, the primary value, wow. and now, when they negotiate a contract, an agreement, are the terms of this agreement kind? What does that mean? They said that they have a debate around what would this mean? If, now, this is not at the expense of good business. This is not at the expense of profitability. But they believe what it does is it forces people to check their behavior and to think about, is this right now what I'm doing kind? What would kind mean in the articulation of a contract and a negotiation process? Now, do you, you can only imagine how challenging this is for guys and, and ladies who come to work in a cutthroat environment, looking to draw blood at every at every opportunity to earn the bonus, to make the millions, to but now they've got to be kind. And the thing is that they also they put another um, another little construct in place, and it was something that they learned from the from the Navy SEALs. There's some sort of a, a accountability construct whereby if somebody in your team, if you know that they're doing something wrong. And if you don't intervene, either do something yourself or address it with leadership. When the other person gets caught and it's discovered that you knew about it, your punishment is twice as harsh as theirs because you didn't intervene. You didn't take the accountability. And so what these guys did is they applied that as well. They said anyone who allows, observes, allows, or endorses and supports acts of unkindness will be even more harshly dealt with. And they don't tolerate it because one of the weaknesses in business is a tolerance of bad behavior. And so it's been profound to see the shift that this organization has been through, through the selection of this one value that's forced them to make different decisions around humaning and around better humaning. And I want to emphasize, not at the price of profitability. So what would you say to someone who thinks you, if you're going to be strategic, you can't be kind, or if you're going to be the kind, empathetic person that cares about people that you can't be strategic in the business world? Well, I'd say they need to change their mindset <laughs> because you can. <laughs> you, you absolutely can. It's, the problem is that for too long, um, that's what we've believed and that's what has been demonstrated. 
is people who got to the top were those who were not kind, those who took a hard line. As I keep saying, this is not at the price of performance. This is simply in a moment of human behavior. Even if somebody's made a mistake, for example, somebody's done something really wrong, you can have a moment where you completely annihilate them, embarrass them, defeat their soul in front of a whole lot of other people, um, damage them, scar them, and yourself in the process, even though you don't realize it. Or you can say, okay, hold on, just everybody stop. Let's have a look at what's just happened here. What is the learning moment? Um, that's definitely not what we were looking to achieve. Let's just get some understanding. Let's not point fingers. Let's not blame. We, that's a separate thing. Let's take the learning moment. A, how do we rectify this right now? I want innovation. I want creativity. Everybody, get your heads involved. Got to be a team here. Yes, we've had a mistake. Fine. And what's the learning moment in terms of how do we have this not happen again? Choice of tone, choice of language, choice of energy, timing, and choice of how the person who right now is feeling the most vulnerable is made to feel by your behavior. It doesn't in any way change the fact that we've got to get busy, we've got to do something. But the response to that situation and to that person does not need to be unkind. Because think about the ripple effect on everybody else in the system in that moment. If they know that the way you just treated this person, if you annihilated this person, embarrassed, humiliated, threatened, uh, abused, is what happens if I make a mistake. Well, no one in that system is going to innovate, try something new, do anything risky. And right there, your future relevance and your future progress just got shut down. Because right now, what we need is for people to feel safe, to try new things, to make suggestions without a fear of being victimized, made to feel stupid, um, or abused. So what is the ripple effect of that moment? And it, it could be so damaging to shut down um, that innovation and creativity, but I, yeah. I read a story one time and I feel bad because I can't remember the name of the person who did this, but it's a, it was a story about leadership and there was a um, CEO of a company or a leader, I want to say it may have even been a previous U.S. president, like way back, you know, in the early 1900s. And an employee in, in um, that worked on airplanes made a huge mistake. Are you familiar with this story? I'm not sure, but yeah, no, they, you they made a really big mistake that could have caused this airplane to crash and cost the lives of everyone on board. And afterwards, when this leader um, approached them. They were terrified and just, you know, obviously thought that not only they were going to lose their job, but who knows what other kind of punitive consequences would come along with this massive mistake. Because, you you know, you count on the air, airline crew to be 100% and never make a mistake. But the leader shook their hand and looked them in the eye and said, you know, why why would I fire you? Because you you've learned one of the most valuable lessons. And I know you're never going to make that mistake again. So now you're even more valuable to me than the other people on the team who haven't learned this lesson yet. And I was like, oh, whoa, like, <laughs> you know, I guess in that case, he, you know, made the decision that I can count on this person not to make this mistake again. And that's just too valuable. Yep. It's a similar story uh, to, and again, I'm not, I don't remember the exact context, but somebody made a significant mistake. It was like a $5 million mistake. Um, and when they realized they'd made the mistake, typed up the resignation letter, put it in an envelope, walked into the CEO's office and said, said, here, I resign. 
And the CEO opened the letter up, read it, tore it up in front of this employee. And the employee said, what are you doing? I've just made a, a $5 million error. And the CEO said, exactly. I've just paid for a very expensive education. You're staying and I'm getting a return on my investment. And um, wow. so, yeah. Yeah, very powerful. Oh, my goodness. So what is it that... Um, we're missing when it comes to communication, because I feel like a lot of times we we're given the opportunity to just hide behind a screen. So how can we be more meaningful in how we are speaking with other people that we're influencing the people that we work with? Um, I want to make sure my conversations are impactful. I only have so much time in the day. I want to bring as much value as I can. I want to make the biggest difference that I can. So what might I be missing and how I'm communicating with people and how can I do better with that? So Kathleen, the, the key word there is meaningful. In our, in our essentials model, one of the 12 essentials is meaningful communication. And it's about being succinct, specific, intentional. And we, we, we utter thousands of words a day. And a lot of those words, we don't think about what are they designed to achieve. They just are noise. And I think that meaningful communication, particularly in this time of disconnected logistic, where we are separated, we are not standing next to each other, where um, a lot of the nuance is, is achieved. Here we're communicating like this or via emails, WhatsApps, voice notes. Um, I think the most important thing is is to think about both the experience of, of deliverer and receiver. Communication works two ways. So the first thing is as a deliverer, when I'm communicating, what is my intention? Um, and there's a really important thing we've learned with this COVID disconnection is that we need to remember people are lacking context. When they're not standing next to us, we're not sharing context. So we need to send any communication we send with the assumption that they really know very little. So we need to detail more. We need to be more specific. We need to not speak in shorthand and make it very clear that what lands on the other side, whatever it might be and however it's delivered um, is explicit in its intention so that the other person can pick up the ball, as we say, and run with it. So we've got to think about how do we pass the ball perfectly and check our communication before we send it or while we're sending it. What I find very powerful with verbal communication is now is if I, if I issue an instruction or I ask somebody to do something or I delegate an instruction or a piece of work, the technique I'm using personally, and I'm su suggesting to everybody I work with, individual and team, is once I've asked or shared something, what I do is I ask the receiver to share back with me what they've understood of what I've just said. Okay. Ask them to share back with me, just share back. But what I do is I pre-qualify it. Because if I say to you, Kathleen, can you just share back with me what you heard? You might think I'm trying to catch you out. You might right. think I'm trying to uh, you know, catch you in a mistake. So I pre-qualified by saying, just so that I can make sure I have shared uh, accurately and that what's in my head has come out in words can you share back with me what you understood of it? So I make it safe that I'm trying to check my communication. I've done this thousands of times. Do you know how many times the person on the receiving end, the first time I've done this to them, has been able to share back with me accurately? Is, is it rare? 
Is it? How do you it's find zero. it? It's zero. For two reasons. One, we speak in a little bit of an abbreviated shorthand. And what's crystal clear in our head isn't often what comes out of our mouths. And two, people who are listening to us are listening through all of their own filters and their own distractions, especially if they not haven't been made aware that we're going to ask them to explain back. So they never get it completely right. But now the reality of it is if I hadn't asked this question, they would have run off to go and do what I wanted them to do and got it wrong. Taken time, wasted time. So what happens though is in that act of me asking them to share back, what I've just done, because I know I'm now going to do it, is I make sure I explain even more succinctly. And then they know when I engage with them a second time, they know that I'm going to ask them to explain which means they dial up their listening. And immediately, we've just raised up the level of the quality of communication between two individuals in a group because they know there's going to be an accountability on that listening. It changes the quality of the engagement significantly and also the levels of focus and intentionality. So I think that's a really important thing to be conscious of. Make sure that the communication matters both ways. Um, be in optimum delivery mode, be in optimum receiving mode, Check for clarity. It, it saves so much time, energy, and frustration at a time where we're lacking. And then the second thing that I think is really important is, is be discerning in terms of what you communicate. I don't think there's such a thing as over-communicating, especially at a time like now. There is such a thing as spamming. So be discerning <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of what you're pushing at people. And also your methodology. Some communication is best delivered put by putting the phone to our ear, something we seem to have forgotten how to do. Pick up the phone, make a quick call. You can iron out 10 emails with one quick phone call. Um, some things belong on an email and other things belong in a face-to-face. -face. Work out, or even a quick WhatsApp, work out what should be communicated how um, and be efficient. And sometimes just think twice, does this even need to happen? Uh, because a lot of what we're doing is just noise and distraction and wasted energy and can be done differently. So just a couple of points around communication. I've been so guilty of that. I tend to move at a really fast pace and I'm always thinking a couple steps ahead. And so I know that there's times where I've just abbreviated and in my head, everything, I could see it so clearly. And then it just, the ball gets dropped and it's really my fault because I just didn't make it clear and concise. And I didn't like create an environment where it would be easy to follow along. And um, I think people want to um, show up and do the right thing and be able to be counted on. And sometimes I make it hard to do that. So um, yeah. Yeah. thanks for giving us a tool for that because sometimes it can, man, with this, I think it'd be easier to just be sloppy with it and let it go because we are so busy. But if we can be a little more intentional there, I think it'll be worth it. So um, well, I think if you, you measure the return on investment, of those extra couple of minutes, if it's happening all over your organization, um, if everybody is taking an extra two or three minutes to prevent days or hours, hours or days of waste, game changer. Absolutely. And um, in your book, you talk about work shouldn't suck. So what makes work suck, Brad? <laughs> Lots. <laughs> so, <laughs> So Captain, work, work sucks when a human being wakes up in the morning 
with a knot in their stomach about the place that they have to come or the people they have to deal with or the things that they have to do um, because of the level of switched off that they're experiencing, because of the lack of psychological safety. You know, emotion is a feeling. It's, a, it's, it's created in our, in our you know, brain processes and it manifests in our body, but it's caused by, our, by the external stimulus. So work sucks because of external stimulus. And that can be an individual. There can be somebody in a work environment who is, we call them Ralph. Uh, in the book, we talk about Ralph, who is a real person. Um, and we, we've actually animated Ralph. He's a caricature. And we're doing all sorts of amazing things. But Ralph stands for R-A-L-P-H, refusing to allow learning and progress to happen. And this is really bad behavior. And this is that leader who shuts you down. This is that leader who, or colleague, not leader, colleague, human being, um, who creates that your work experience is terrible. And so many people wake up in the morning to go into abusive relationships in their workplace, where there is somebody who all day long beats them down, abuses them. That's the individual. Then there can be a system whereby the processes of the organization are such and the rules and regulations are such that they're just thoroughly, thoroughly unenjoyable and create that work sucks because it doesn't make sense, but you have no power to question authority and say, hey, but there's a better way of doing this. And you're dominated and, and suppressed into bad ways of working that live in a world that we hopefully escaped decades ago. So it can be a systemic context. And then there are also all sorts of toxicities that exist uh, inside the cultures of, of teams and cliques. Uh, bullying is massive in the work environment. And then at the same time, you can have the people are abused in terms of um, the amount of, of pressure that they are subjected to, to to deliver, but the pressure is, is making people sick. The World Health Organization two years ago released some, some statistics that people can Google. And um, what they showed was that more people are dying now. This is pre-COVID from workplace-related, stress-related conditions than people who are dying from sugar and smoking-related conditions. Now, what that means is people are waking up in the morning to go walk through the door or log on to systems and people that are slowly but surely killing them because of wow. what stress does to our, our bodies and our physiology. Stress is a killer. And what we don't realize and why work sucks so much is because of the external stimulus that creates that level of stress, because none of those are enjoyable moments. And that's why work sucks, whether it's over excessive pressure for delivery, whether it's unrealistic expectation, whether it's lack of clarity of expectation. Leaders who, you know, we've had a lot of people ask us, so what is the new leadership style? How should we be leading during this disconnected, dislocated world of remote work and COVID? And my response is nothing's changed. The way we should have been leading before is the way we should be leading now. The same things still matter. Some of the how inside that might be different, but a leader's job was still to motivate and inspire, was still to create clarity of expectation, was still to build connection, was still to grow individuals, teach and guide, was still to manage complexity. None of this changed. The logistic changed, but the leaders who were not good and not capable at that before COVID. These are the micromanaging leaders. These are the leaders who, who traditionally made people ill, who led badly, who created excessive stress. 
well, their lives got even more difficult now because they can't lean over people's shoulders. They can't micromanage. So now they're trying to micromanage and bully at a distance. And those are the leaders who we're seeing are forcing people back into the office now when they don't need to. In fact, when it's still illegal, still illegal. But I have people phoning me saying, my boss is forcing myself and my team to come back to work. And it's because the boss hasn't worked out how to lead at a distance. And that's why work sucks. Oh my gosh. And this reminds me of an experience I had in my early 20s when I was going through college. I got my degree online while I worked in a sales environment. And it was a very high pressure sales environment in the retail world. And um, I learned a lot through it. So I I don't want to discount the valuable lessons that I learned because I'm so grateful that I put in that hard work at an early age. But um, it was the leadership in that environment would, you know, try arbitrary goals, um, unrealistic goals, um, a lot of calling you out um, in front of, you know, other managers and things like that. And I, I was a top performer. I was the top salesperson in the company, top store. It, but I didn't get to be excited to go to work every day. Um, I, you know, it, I was there for several years and it was really, really tough. And it's actually one of the biggest driving motivators that I wanted to start my own business because I wanted to create a, a different place for people to find a career opportunity where they wouldn't just make money and they wouldn't just be able to accomplish things, but feel valued as a person and not a dollar sign. And that's really one of my favorite things about the insurance world is that agents, um, every day when we you know open up the doors of our business or log online, I should say, we have an opportunity to create a different experience for every person who is working with us. They're looking up to us, they're counting on us to guide them through their career and help them get from point A to point B. And if we make it only about the money and we make it only about um, the just the surface level opportunity that we've created, I think we're missing how much of an impact we could have on these people that um, that we're hiring every day in our businesses. So that's something that I think about. And to your point, Brad, it doesn't have to be at the expense of productivity. We can still have high-performing teams. The goal is actually to, to activate and energize those talents so that um, that productivity can come to fruition, but in a way where um, we're not neglecting the human experience along the way. Absolutely. I think that's the... You know, I love that you were you were nudged early on to create a business that was going to be a great place for people to work because of your own experience. And uh, what we need is more people to have that intentionality because there is only one way that a business can be an amazing place to work. And that's if the most senior leadership and the business owners set that intention. Because one of the things that we experience so frequently when we do our work is we, we run extensive trainings. You know, we've got... We built a digital academy, with it, which is the better human in the world of work nano degree, where people can come and take all of our research and they can very dynamically, short video content, downloadable workbooks, learn how to be a better human being in the world of work. And then what we do is we get feedback from people who've been through this, these programs. And they say, I love this. This is exactly what I want to be doing and how I want to lead. But every time I try and implement something new, it gets blocked at senior leadership. And these are senior people. These are what I call XCO minus one minus one. So it's senior leaders just below the top. 
And they say the second they try and implement these principles that are solid, they get blocked. And that's why, for me, the most important thing is as a leader, as a business owner, as a senior executive, is understanding this and supporting it and not tolerating the bad behaviors. Because otherwise, the thing, the, the culture you're trying to build gets consistently eroded away by, by Ralphs, as we say. <laughs> so um, I think you're, you're, what you're expressing around your intentionality and also the, the magic of the world of insurance, uh, it creates that, that, that flexible dynamic, that growth space. But what's required is a growth mindset. And it's really important. I mean, we do a lot of work in the insurance sector. And what, what I find is that those um, people in, 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 in the industry who are open to the fact, firstly, that the world has changed, it's not going back. You, I'm looking you in the eye through the camera, everybody, uh, or, or if you're listening um, to, to audio, the world has changed. And we fundamentally have all changed. And so have the consumers, the people who are purchasing from us and are looking to us to guide them in terms of these very important aspects of their lives. Their needs and their, their needs state has changed. And so it's really important for us to connect to where the world and humanity is right now. In spite of our own biases, in spite of our own fears, in spite of our own uh, uh, you know, insecurities, and in spite of however it was that we became successful previously, that doesn't count anymore. Um, we need to be the leaders of this new era, this new environment, this new way of being and way of working. And that really is the challenge and the invitation that I put to everybody I work with, is um, you, know, you can either have it happen to you, or you can be creating what's happening. And it's a lot more fun to be in creation than to be in the impact of. Um, we understand what's going on. And I'm not saying it's going to be comfortable. It's not comfortable. It's change. Change is never comfortable. But I feel significantly empowered to know that I'm participant in the change as opposed to I'm go it's going to be done to me. I way prefer being participant because then I'm learning and I'm growing the whole time. But it also required an adjustment of my own mindset. I had become very comfortable with how I did things. Uh, but I do believe that a sector like insurance is one that we're seeing the adaptation. We're seeing the innovation. We're seeing the overspoken about disruption. And it's powerful. Now, we need to jump on board and work out. The biggest change that I could share that we're seeing is the use of technology for better product placement, better customer information, Human beings cannot do what machines can do. The AI is that intelligent now. The sooner we all accept and understand that, the sooner we can work out what is the piece that we as humans, as experts, as specialists, can do that the machines still cannot do better than us. And how do we leverage technology and be amazing in the human piece? What is that? And how do you jump in and become exceptionally valuable to people who are leveraging technology but still want great human so we have to think about how we're going to bring value that the computer can't bring, because if it's better exactly. at rating those policies and it's better at getting that bindable quote ready, then how are we going to step in and create a meaningful interaction? And we're going to have to up our game. And um, I wish that topics like emotional intelligence and EQ were more prevalent today, because I, I don't see organizations having these conversations where they praise an employee and say, hey, you had really intentional communication there and you were really specific and concise and clear. And I just find that that was really effective. 
And it's because we we kind of like know we should be doing it. And it's kind of like on the radar, but it's not ingrained in business culture yet to the point where I'd like to see it go in the future. Because I think these things that you're talking about are going to be so impactful as we change how we interact with clients and people who are making, making purchasing decisions. Um, but that we, we can't be the, the agent or the broker that's behind the ball on this one. So, you know, Kathleen, what I found, if I was to make a comparison, I'm faculty at a couple of um, global business schools, and we've got in our, in our educational context, the old school professor who is still writing on a, on a chalkboard with a, a green chalkboard with a piece of white chalk. I mean, that, that, they missed the invention of the whiteboard, and that's how far behind they are. And um, you know, now we've moved to teaching online, and it's blended, and it's synchronous, and it's asynchronous, and it's part recorded, and all the, the app technologies. And these professors originally, when COVID, now we've been going through an evolution anyway in the education context. It was happening. What COVID did and what lockdowns around the world did is they it accelerated the human acceptance of technology. We suddenly were all on Zoom and doing things that we weren't doing before. And um, we became more efficient. We just, in a lot of cases, didn't accept that because, uh, you know, I had coaches who were saying, but I can't connect. I, I need to be opposite the person. Like, no, you don't. I'm even more effective here. We're totally connected. I'm paying attention to every word. I don't have to be sitting opposite the table with you. But until they realized that, their practices were running dry. The professors, they were not teaching classes. And some of them have gone into retirement because the system is not waiting for them to catch up. The system moved. And they were now standing in empty classrooms. There's no one there. And the exact same thing will happen to insurance sector and any other sector where professors and old school people are still trying to write on chalkboards. If you're a practitioner of anything, you're still trying to do it the way we did it just two years ago, never mind 10 years ago, the industry is going to run away from you. You're going to be watching its, uh, the smoke out of the tailpipe. It's gone. And, um, and it's frightening, but people have no choice. We need to secure our relevance. And that means we've got to get comfortable with where the world is at, not live in denial of where the world is at, and not live in hopium. I talk about the drug of hopium. It's <laughs> waiting for it to go back to how it used to be. It's not going back. It's not going back. Well, agents, I hope we've inspired you to embrace the impact that you have every day. There's no neutrality um, from what we're learning from Brad. We are either actively um, contributing or actively damaging the goal that we're striving towards. So let's embrace that meaningful communication. Let's figure out how to have an even stronger EQ so that we can bring more value to our clients and um, create a workplace that's a little bit different than what we've experienced in the past. So that when our employees come to work, we can activate them and energize them to be able to bring their best to the table. And um, I, I, I just find those ideas really inspiring and something that I feel like we can all benefit from. So Brad, thank you for sharing those with us. And how can we, um, how can we find out more? If we've, we have some agents who are listening that want to dive deeper into this content, um, how can they find you and your courses so that they can learn more? Catlin, they can, firstly, if they're interested in reading our book, 
Uh, if they go to Amazon and they just Google, we are still human um, and works shouldn't suck, they'll find the book there. And if they would like to find out more about the, um, the Better Humaning in the World of Work Nano Degree, which is the online on-demand program, um, there is a short link that they can use. It's, it's bit.ly, bit.ly, um, slash, uh, what's it? It's a, what do we I call it? I forget if thing? it's forwards or backwards. <laughs> it's, a, it's the angled thing that goes away, uh, better humaning. So bit.ly, uh, angled slash better humaning. Uh, but, and that's where they can find the site, uh, which will take them through to, to some demo sample pages of the on-demand program. Uh, what we've done is we've deliberately designed the videos to be short. They're between five and eight minutes each of learning, downloadable workbooks, all sorts of tools and language, which helps organizations very quickly get onto the same page. Common language, common tools, all designed around better humaning, primarily in the world of work, but really these things we take home with us. So uh, bit.ly uh, slash better humaning is where they can find the uh, access. And then our website um, www.stillhuman.co.za is where they can find contact details if they want to connect with us. That's fantastic. Thank you, Brad. It's so great picking your brain and agents. Um, make sure you check out that content um, and let's work together to create workplaces that don't suck. And to Brad's advice, let's watch out for Ralph. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Uh, until next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone.